Welcome to High Performance Mindset with Dr. Sindra Kampoff. Do you want to reach your full potential, live a life of passion, go after your dreams? Each week, we bring you strategies and interviews to help you ignite your mindset. Let's bring on Sindra. Welcome to the High Performance Mindset Podcast. This is your host, Sindra Kampoff, and thank you so much for joining me here today for the interview with Don Yeager. Now, the goal of these interviews is to learn from the world's best leaders, athletes, coaches, and consultants, all about the topic of mindset to help us reach our potential or be high performers in our field or our sport. Now, today, I had the amazing privilege of interviewing Don Yeager. Now, Don is a nationally acclaimed inspirational speaker, a longtime associate editor of Sports Illustrated, the author of over 30 books, 11 of which have become New York Times bestsellers. Now, Don left Sports Illustrated in 2008 to pursue a public speaking career that has allowed him to share stories, learn from the greatest winners of our generation, with audiences as diverse as Fortune 10 companies to cancer survivor groups, where he shares his personal story. Now, more than a quarter of a million people have heard his talks on what makes the great ones great. He also recently came out with a book called Great Teams, uh, which I've read and the reason that I wanted to have him on the show. He is an award-winning certified speaking professional and executive coach and team culture expert. Now, in this interview, Don and I talk about the characteristics of the great ones, how the great ones respond in the moments of adversity. We also talk about his book, Great Teams and the Habits of High-Performing Teams, and what separates the great teams from others. Now, two of my favorite quotes from this interview are this. Don said, how do you respond in moments of adversity? The ability you have to change the narrative is the piece of the puzzle that most of us are missing. And then he said, the great ones see adversity as the moment to stand out, not to give up. Now, I know you'll enjoy today's interview. You can head over to Twitter and let Don and I know what you thought about the podcast, what stood out to you or what quote of his stood out to you. And you can tag myself at mentally underscore strong. And then Don is at at Don Yeager. You can also head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. This one, for example, is from Cloris Kyle who said, create the life you've always wanted. Dr. Cinder's show is so full of energy and inspiration. What you need to become empowered to create the kind of life you've always wanted. Five stars. So thank you so much, Cloris Kyle. Super appreciate the rating and review. Now, one thing before I head over to the interview with Don, I was having a storm here in Minnesota during Don's interview. So a few of the spots kind of go in and out because of our internet connection. But I know that you're going to love this interview regardless. So thank you so much for listening. And without further ado, here's Don Yeager. Welcome to the High Performance Mindset Podcast. I am excited today to introduce you to Don Yeager. So Don, thank you so much for joining us here today on the podcast. So glad to be here. <laughs> I'm looking forward to talking with you more about your work. And I think a lot of our work overlaps. So I know that the people on the podcast, the listeners are going to thoroughly enjoy your interview. So tell us a little bit about just, you know, your insight and your passion and what you do right now, Don. Sure. Now I was a, uh, a longtime sports writer at uh, several newspapers and then at Sports Illustrated Magazine and uh, retired from there a number of years ago 
and uh, took an early retirement package with the opportunity to go out, continue writing, uh, mostly in the book space, and to begin speaking. So like you said, I began a speaking career, and it has uh, uh, been a really incredible journey to kind of go out to figure out how to grow, uh, how to grow this, this world, and learn how to tell stories in a different way. You know, it's such a, it is a, it's a different skill set, a different talent, and something I've had to learn how to work at and develop. So, uh, loving every minute of it. Oh, I love it, love it. So, just tell us a little bit about, you know, where you got to where you are now. So, you know, you started as a writer, then were Sports Illustrated until 2008 when you began your speaking career. So, just fill in the blanks a little bit so we can get to know you a little bit more, Don. Sure. Yeah. I, um, as you said, I, I just, I had this history of writing, of storytelling, right? I mean, in my own right, I was, that's, that's what I always considered myself. And um, I just grew to really appreciate the opportunity to go out and help other people tell their stories. Just, just be engaged in asking questions of people, learning about others and what made them tick. And um, when I graduated from college, my father uh, I was, I, I remember it as if it were yesterday, we were, I was standing in the driveway of our family home in Indianapolis, and I was headed to my first job in San Antonio, Texas, and uh, and and I, my car was packed, and my father looked at me, and he said, you know, um, son, just because of the profession you've chosen, like this concept that you're going to be a journalist, you're going to end up in the presence of some extraordinary people. They... Um, you will get a chance to, to be with people who have achieved great things. And um, uh, no matter what you're asking them, you should always carve out a little piece of every one of those conversations uh, to ask something you can learn, something you can use. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I thought, wow, pretty interesting piece of wisdom. And uh, I, had a lo- I had a long drive to Texas. And over the course of time, um, over the course of the, you know, the, the next a few weeks, I really kind of settled in on the idea that I would ask all these extraordinary winners if they could name one habit, one thing that they believed was uh, was key to their success, something that they did that allowed them to separate themselves from their competitors. Ah. And and again, a lot of my interviews were going to be with high performers, especially athletes. And so I figured that they were going to, there was going to be something about a training method or, uh, uh, or something related to their, their fitness or their diet or whatever it might've been. And, uh, 25 years later, after doing, uh, more than 2,500 interviews and keeping the answers that these people were giving me, uh, in a set of notebooks, um, I sat down after retiring from SI and I sat down to ask, just to try to figure out what answers come up most frequently when the great winners answer that question. Ah. And what was fascinating to me is that, and this really plays into your space, Sandra, is that uh, not a single, not, not a, none of the major, none of those that I would consider I was, that I was most impressed with credited their physical gifts. Uh, they all talked about mental, emotional, spiritual disciplines that they were building in their lives that made them, uh, that made them special. And, uh, and I loved it because that was very encouraging to me. I'll never have their physical gifts, but I can work to develop their mental, emotional, spiritual disciplines, right? So Absolutely. it was very affirming to me in, in its own way. 
And so is that where your list of 16 characteristics of greatness came from? Just those in those 2,500 interviews? It is. So ultimately I settled in and, um, and just kind of picked the 16 that, that, that came up most frequently and, um, and how they, uh, how they played into the development of these great winners. Mm, excellent. So I think we should dive into some of those characteristics. There were about four of them that caught my attention because um, I think they're, they're unique. But I, I'd like to ask you first, on that, six, that list of 16 characteristics of what makes the great ones great, which ones, you know, which one or two do you think is the most surprising for people? So the one that was probably most surprising to me um, was uh, is listed as number two on the list, and it, and it was put there because uh, John Wooden, the great basketball coach at UCLA, uh, made a point of of making sure I understood. And in his opinion, and again, you're a fool if you don't listen to John Wooden's opinion. Exactly. But in, in the, the second most important characteristic of any great winner was that they understood the, uh, the value or the power of their associations. They knew they were never, they, they, were, they were not going to outperform their inner circle. Really key element as I was growing and understanding this was that I needed to surround myself with people um, that were headed where I wanted to go, right? Did not need to be spending time with people who were finding ways to, emotionally and mentally drag me down and we all have those people in our lives right uh, and so I had to learn how to be more uh, judicious in my in my time uh, giving giving of my time and and so that was interesting to me because coach wouldn't I would have thought it would have been about practice or training or whatever but again it was about who you surround yourself with and that one really stood out to me so, Don, what changes did you make in your life after hearing that in terms of, you know, who you should surround yourself with and why that's important? So one of the things that happened when I was there working with Coach Wooden and he exposed me to this concept, this idea about your inner circle, uh, was a coach actually took, we were at, we were at uh, breakfast, um, and he actually took a sheet of paper, a blank sheet of paper, and he drew two lines in it down in the middle of it. And so now there are three columns on the, uh, on the, on the page. And he said, Don, I, I want you to take this paper and I want you, the first column is your personal life. Um, who do you spend the most time with? That's your inner circle. Who do you spend your time with in your personal life? Then your middle column is your work life. Like who are the people that you engage with, that you're, that you're standing next to each other at the water cooler, that you go to lunch to when given a chance. That's your, that's your work life inner circle. And the third column, he said, was like your church life or some, some other social organization. And so once you identify who those 15 people are that play those roles in your three aspects of your life, he said, I want you to sit down and I want you to look at each name and ask yourself that question. Are they going where I'm going? Um, do they want for me what I, what I want for me? And he said, if they're, if they're not, he said, you'll know it and you need to scratch them from the list and replace them with someone who is. You need to find a new five. And um, it became this really fascinating journey for me to sit down and make that list and really try to, because he was saying, it's not who you aspire to spend time with, it's who you really do spend time with, right? Uh, it's not who you wanna hang out with, it's who you do hang out with. That's your inner circle. And he said, you will never outperform your inner circle. Hmm. If you wanna be better, improve your circle. 
And so um, it was a really big moment for me to, to sit down and do that. And yes, there were in fact a couple of people who I had to make very intellectual, very, very intent, intentional choices around the amount of time I was going to give them. And that became very difficult. Absolutely. And you just ended up spending less time with them or do you, did they Correct. just end up dropping out of your list, your top five? No, no. I mean, one of them, I'll, I'll, I'll be candid with you. One of them was a, was a member of my family who, you know, uh, who I just realized my conversations were always negative when, when, when I was in the conversation uh, with her and I, I, I realized, you know what, I need to, I need to just find. So I began creating less and less opportunity for those conversations to exist. Absolutely. Um, and in that situation, uh, it gave me more time and more opportunity to replace those moments with people who were going the direction I wanted to go. And I like the two questions that he asked you to consider, you know, are they going where I'm going and do they want from me what I want from me. And I thought that second one was incredibly powerful because, you know, they do they see maybe the same strengths that you see and uh, are they supporting you along the way? Correct. And that's yeah. a really big deal. You know, Don, one of the other things in your 16 characteristics of what make, makes great people great, you have um, inner fire. They use adversity as fuel. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Sure. Yeah, they, you know, there are, truly great ones in my opinion um you know there are moments that in all of our lives when um something happens that is uh knee buckling you know that it sends you uh sends you to the couch or you know it could make you want to curl up in the fetal position um uh the truly great ones uh get up from those moments and uh they do something special right? and it's not necessarily something heroic it's often just plain something special right it's how do you respond in those moments and uh and and and, and the ability you have to kind of change the um the narrative around what's happening in your life just by how you choose to respond to those knee buckling moments is a um is a piece of the puzzle that most of us are missing. And so um, that's what's so fascinating to me is, you know, what I was trying to work on and do here was learn from these great winners about how do they construct their puzzle. And can you give us a story or two or maybe a story from what you see them do or from your own personal life? Well, sure. So a story that I often share um, when I speak about this specific subject is about a, um, a football player named Warwick Dunn. Um, he was a uh, uh, he was a high schooler in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and he was one of the best high school football players in the country. Even though he's tiny, he's only five foot eight and weighs one hundred seventy eight pounds. And um, but he was so good, every major college football coach in the country essentially uh, made their way, or uh, their 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 lead assistant made their way to his home and to his mother's couch to ask if he'd play college football at their university. Well, he was, his mother was a police officer and uh, she was the single mom of six. He was the oldest of six. And um, uh, on Christmas day of a senior year, he makes the decision with his mom that he's gonna go play at Florida State University for Bobby Bowden. And, um, uh, and, and just two weeks later, uh, he gets a phone call and it's the police department calling to tell him that his mother 
uh, had been shot and killed in a robbery at a bank. Wow. So he's the oldest of six, and he now is the man of the house. He has all kinds of responsibilities that he wasn't ready for. And Bobby Bowden calls him and offers to um, you know, release him from his commitment if he wanted to stay and play football in Louisiana. And he said, no, I'm going to, my mom and I made that commitment together. Yes. And, and I will never dishonor her by, by changing course. I will be there. And so he comes to Florida State, and over the course of his four years, he leads them to their first ever national championship, graduates with a degree in business, and finishes as the university's all-time leading rusher. Wow. And, uh, but in the process, helps his younger brothers and sisters graduate from elementary and middle school, right? It's pretty cool. And uh, goes to the NFL, and he's selected by Tony Dungy and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Tony Dungy, a good Minneapolis guy. Um, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with the 12th pick of the first round of the draft. Wow. You know, he's only 5'8", 178 pounds, right? All these writers are saying, why are you drafting a guy that small? They get, they get, they get killed in the NFL, right? And Dungy said, you know what? You measure your athletes by their height and their weight, and I measure them by their heart. Ah. And this guy, this guy belongs with that measurement. He belongs in the NFL. And so Warwick uh, goes to the NFL, and he ultimately plays 11 years. Uh, he finishes with 13, excuse me, plays 13 years, finishes with 11,000 yards rushing and 5,000 yards receiving. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and he actually retired about five years ago, five years ago now, um, to become the first African-American part owner of the Atlanta Falcons. So it's pretty incredible, right? The guy totally belongs. But, uh, but along the way, when he's a rookie, he signs a contract and, uh, and he decides to start a charity. And the charity is uh, he wants to start buying homes for women like his mom. Uh, just a few weeks ago, work at the 155th home for a single mom uh, that he has managed to managed to purchase in the last 16 years. 155 homes. He's got uh, 430 children live in a home today that that uh, that they get to call their own because work done made it happen. Right. Um, the guy's extraordinary. Right? I mean, every level, he's like the greatest I've ever worked with. Absolutely. And yeah, he, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, Don, gonna... you know, what, what, I'm, what I'm thinking is he definitely uses adversity as fuel. So how do you see that the, the greatest, you know, athletes or leaders, how do they see the, you know, the, the adversity? How do they see it? How do they view it? And how do they use it as fuel? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. What they see is um, instead of being uh, moments to curl up, they see them as moments to stand out. And so they look at adversity. Um, they begin the process of, of adversity in a different place than most of us. Right? They begin by believing that, uh, that this is an opportunity for them to stand out. And so yeah, what are most of us doing when something bad happens? We're, we're hiding. A, we're hiding or we're in a woe is me moment. Exactly. And, and they, on the other hand, are saying, an opportunity has just been given me. Huh. What am I, I going to do with it? Yeah, and you said that you see most people sort of missing that component. Tell us about your perspective on that. 
Well, I mean, I certainly, uh, we've all failed. I've I had more than my share. I've, uh, you know, I was very early in my career as a writer. I actually, I just written my first book, and I was um, I was working for a newspaper and here in Florida, and um, and I was so busy promoting my book and being that guy that was doing something cool because to write a book is cool, right? That um, um, I, 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 I was not doing my job very well. And ultimately, uh, after a warning and my arrogance getting in the way, uh, an editor at that newspaper chose to fire me. And I was crushed. Like, I was big time, right? I'd written a book. How do you fire me? Yeah. And I went into a funk for a bit uh, before I realized, you know, I, um, I have to live the things that I, I, I believe I've been taught and begin looking for what's that next thing going to look like. But it was, it, it took, it took a, I didn't enter the opportunity with the mindset I should have. Sure. Exited it like I should have. Huh. which was I went out and found new opportunities to write more books and um, ultimately got offered the job. But by then I'd already made a decision that it was time for my life to move in a different direction. And so um, it was, it was, it, you know, it was one of the great things that could ever happen to me. For sure. Yeah. Those moments of failure, they define you, right? <laughs> and you they can do. decide to, to rise above or, or hide. You know, so what would you say is the you know the lesson that you learned from that? You you kind of mentioned that you didn't enter the opportunity with the right set of, of mindset. So tell us what you wish you would have done differently in terms of entering the opportunity. Well, again, I mean, there's there's two pieces to to how we come out of failure. The first is um, with that with that mindset that what we're what we've just been presented. If we if we reframe it right, and I'm a big believer in you know much of the way we react to things comes down to how we frame them. If we reframe them, uh, we are, uh, we're beginning with the understanding that what we've, what we've got is a new opportunity. Right. Um, now the second piece of it is I'm also a big believer in, uh, from a military perspective, they call them after action reports, right? Okay. Which is what do you, how do you break down and, um, and take a lesson from uh, the moments of success or failure in your life. And uh, most of us will sometimes, will often break down and say, you know, in failure, here's what I should have done differently. Here's what I would have been better if I had known. Here's what I learned as a result. Not many of us do those same, have those same conversations around successes. Um, but in the military model, it's you have an after action report after every action. So if you've gone off on a mission, uh, whether it's gone well or poorly, um, the members of the mission team sit down and talk about what they should have done differently. And so that, I, while there's part of it that says I have to look at it as a positive and, a, and a, an opportunity, and I need to move away from the negative aspect of what just happened to me, I also have to then, within a short period of time, conduct that evaluation what should i have learned from the moment huh. you know michael jordan once said to me in a conversation a loss uh, is not a failure until you've made an excuse so if you have only making excuses when you fail um uh, when you lose then 
then you're failing, right? If you're taking losses and learning, you're okay. You're going to be okay. Nice. And all that relates to your first characteristic of inner fire, use adversity as fuel. So one of the other characteristics I wanted to ask you a little bit about, Don, was this one about ice in the veins. They're thoughtful risk takers and don't fear making a mistake. So how do you see the great ones approach risk and mistakes? Well, so um, the, uh, and the reason I inserted the word, the very first time I did this list and tried to build it, I didn't have the word thoughtful in that sentence, right? Ah, sure. I just talked about being, they were okay with risk taking. And then it was pointed out to me by a couple of the folks that I've done a lot of work with over the years that, that if that's mistaken for um, if that reckless behavior, right? If that's just, you know, if, uh, if you're going to go jump from a plane without a parachute and expect to be able to land, yeah. uh, you know, then, then that's not risk taking, that's idiocy, right? Uh, but if you're thoughtful, if you've said, okay, I'm going to go learn how to parachute, uh, or I'm going to, I'm going to jump with somebody who does, I'm going to, you know, then, then the risk is not, is not, um, in fact, the risk is um, affirming. I mean, again, I use that word a lot because I think it's important to to have yourself reminded of your um, uh, of, of what it feels like to be excellent, right? To what it feels like to be free. And part of what it feels like to be excellent is to believe that um, you can achieve things that most people would look at and say that's not possible. Uh, risk taking is a part of that uh, that decision-making piece of your life where you're saying, I'm willing to try that. I know you might not think, but I've got, I think I understand my risks versus my uh, rewards. And I think I've, I've figured the equation is one I'm willing to go, uh, I'm willing to go bet on. So can you give us an example or, you know, somebody maybe you've interviewed who you think is a thoughtful risk taker and doesn't fear making a mistake? Uh, sure. Well, I mean, in, in my personal life, it's just, you know, um, making the decision uh, 10 years ago. I mean, Sports Illustrated was, the model was changing. They were looking for writers uh, who were working on the staff at the time who would be willing to take a, a buyout, right? An early retirement type package. And um, I was only 45 years old. So it's kind of a crazy early time in your life to, to sit and say, I'm going to quote unquote retire or whatever it might be. Right. Right. From sports um, illustrated. <laughs> from, from one of the great jobs of all time. Right. Yeah, and for sure. Okay. Spot to do what I love to do. Sports illustrates as good a place to do it as ever. And, um, uh, but I also, I mean, you know, it, I, I realized that there were other things I wanted to try to achieve. I wanted to learn how to speak. I wanted to experience what it meant to tell stories um, in a different form. And so uh, I studied speaking. I studied uh, what it meant to be part of the, the, the kind of the community of people that do this professionally. Uh, I hired coaches. I did all of those things so that I could get strong enough that I felt I, I was ready to to take that leap. And then um, I did, I took the leap and it, it could have looked like uh, craziness. As you said, I mean, you leave one of the great jobs on the planet for the unknown, but it really, it might've looked unknown to everybody else. I felt like I 
felt like I had a little bit of known in me, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, you knew, you knew it was a thoughtful risk take, you know, a risk that you knew that you'd be successful in. I, I felt comfortable that I would be. I, I don't think I would have guessed that things would be as good as they are today, but, yeah. you know, but that's cool too, right? Yeah. You, know, you get rewarded for your risk. So 11-time New York Times bestselling author, <laughs> that's phenomenal, uh, probably wouldn't have happened if you would have still been at Sports Illustrated. So, you know, one of the books, Don, I wanted to ask you a little bit about is your 2016 book, uh, Great Teams, 16 Things High-Performing Organizations Do Differently. So tell us, you know, why you decided to write that book in particular. Sure. So when I left uh, Sports Illustrated, I began the process of, I had one speech, right, which is I. I think that's always one of those lessons that I had to learn very early too, because I thought, man, I'm going to speak for everybody and I'm going to tell them anything they want to know. I'll give them everything. And ultimately I had to be coached into realizing you need to have one speech that you can do really well and do it so well that they'll keep hiring you to do it again. Right. Yeah. Yep. And, um, and so I had one speech and that speech was about the habits of high performance, okay. individual high performance. And then um, six years ago, uh, an executive at Microsoft who was hiring me pretty regularly actually challenged me. He said, you know, we love this concept, but we want to know why some teams can do what others can. Yeah, are, some, great. are some teams capable of being continuously relevant uh, when others um, rise and fall? And so I sat down and I started making a list of the great teams I would want to study if they let me. And, uh, and to my surprise, many of them did and would let me come learn from them about how they built uh, an organization that supported sustained excellence. And, um, uh, and while discussing those conversations, uh, while having those conversations with them, I, I grew to realize there was a really amazing book in that too. So um, I thought it was a neat compliment to the discussion about individual high performance. Absolutely. Talk about team performance. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about who the teams that you studied and then a few of the things that you found. We can just dive into some of those 16 things. Sure. I mean, it was Nick Saban in Alabama and Mike Krzyzewski at Duke. It was Greg Popovich in San Antonio and Steve Kerr in Golden State. It was Anson Dorrance, the amazing women's soccer coach at North Carolina, who's won 22 national championships. Uh, to Russ Rose, who's won uh, 10 national titles at Penn State in women's volleyball. It was just, I, I was taking every sport that I could find. I was looking for those people who created, because it doesn't matter what sport you're playing. It doesn't matter if you're playing tiddlywinks, right? right. To, win, to win 22 national championships is pretty hard, right? Yes, yes. So I wanted to learn from the person that could win 22 championships. And... Um, uh, and the number one answer that came up when, when talking to all those great coaches and great leaders was that the best teams um, understand their why. I mean, we've all heard Simon Sinek talk about, you know, do you know your why? That's your individual why. But do you know what your collective why is? Why does your team come together? Who does it matter to if you perform well? Is it, um, does it matter to, uh, does it matter to, to only you and your teammates? Does it matter maybe to some collective group of, uh, of fans? Does it matter to, um, does it matter to those who might have worn the jersey before you, right? Right. Um, 
who is it that you're playing for? What is that? Why does that matter? And um, and what happens if you fail? And when you have that sense of purpose, like a collective belief that you are doing something as a group that you couldn't do by yourself, um, bigger purpose, all that. You've heard all those phrases. When all that comes together and you don't just know it, you feel it, you feel who you're in service of, um, you come to work differently. Ah. You play the game differently. Can you tell us a little bit about how these great teams found this why? You know, was it a an exercise? Was it a group discussion? You know, can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. In a lot of places it was. It was a it was a you know, you sit around, you asked, you asked your team, and this is a great exercise for you to do no matter what business you're in. Sit down with those who work for you, work with you, and ask, well, why, why does what we do matter? Who does it matter to? What, what, happens, what happens if we, if we just plain stink? You know, what if we're not any good? Um, and as you start to understand who you really matter to, um, then it changes the way you feel about what you do because you matter to somebody, right? Yes. All of us. And, and so if you can't, if you can get a sense of that, um, and then, you know, the best teams actually, as I, I used the phrase earlier, they feel what those moments are like. They feel what it means to be um, uh, in service of someone else. You just, you, you work differently when you, when you believe that, that, that what you're here to do impacts others, right? I'm only here that. That's not that inspiring at the end of the day, really. It's not. Uh, in fact, it might almost be more fear. Uh, you, you, it might be more fear-driven because you're worried about losing the paycheck. Right? That's all you're there for. Uh, but if you really want to do inspired work, it's about doing it for someone not for a number. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's really good. I, I know Simon Sinek's TED Talk, and I know a lot of people talk about that, but I like that it's you're kind of describing that we need to apply it to the teams, or at least that's what the, the great teams do, is they all have this collective understanding of who they serve. Correct. So, Don, what's another characteristic that you found in that in those interviews with the great teams or your observations with those great teams? I loved that the best teams uh, promote mentoring culture. That, to me, really stood out. Right? They, they don't have a mentoring program. They have a mentoring culture where this belief that knowledge, is, knowledge belongs to all of us and it's our, our job as we have it to share it with others, right? Um, and, uh, and it doesn't matter if you're, if you're older in the business or younger, there's, prob- there's something I can learn from you if we exist in a mentoring culture. If you believe, I mean, the San Antonio Spurs were the ultimate model for me of that as I studied it. I mean, they, um, it doesn't matter where in the world you're from, it doesn't matter how long you've played the game in, in the NBA, there's something that they learn from each and every one of their teammates and the team responds differently because they believe they're in this. It's a learning culture, right? Right. That one stood out to me. And, you know, one of the things that stood out to me, Don, was that they, they, they promote camaraderie and a sense of collective direction. So tell us a little bit about that one. Well, so that this one was fascinating because so I back to back, there's two chapters in the book. Um, 
there's two sessions I do when I talk about this. One is that they desire to promote camaraderie, right? Like camaraderie isn't weird. It doesn't mean that we all hang out with each other on the weekends. Camaraderie at its root means I appreciate you, right? I appreciate that there's something you bring to the team that I don't have, that I couldn't do without you. And as a result, I appreciate you. That's really the root of camaraderie. Huh. And, and so one of the things that we, uh, we challenge and, and try to look for are ways that we can inspire that within our organizations. How do we, how do we create a, um, a sense of, uh, uh, a sense where we, where, where our folks, and I own three small companies, right? And, uh, and, and I'm always worried, like, how do I, how do I build this sense of camaraderie within the, within the organization? And we do things, we try, we, you know, we do things during work hours. We do things when we, when we can to try to inspire, you know, sometimes if we're in the conference room for a meeting, we'll take five minutes out and begin with a, um, a little exercise we call, uh, you know, I bet you didn't know. And you go around the room and you kind of share something that you bet that the others in the room probably don't know about you. Right. Uh, I grew up playing the ukulele and I'm pretty good at it. Um, you know, when you share things like that, then, you know, you might find the guy across the table goes, really? I played the ukulele when I was a kid too. And next thing you know, there's a sense there of, of this, the, the building blocks of an understanding that, that, we're all bringing something unique to the, you know, this, this, uh, this soup that is our, our workplace, right? This, this gumbo that is ours, um, you know, uh, it's just it's an understanding of where, where we all fit into that recipe. Absolutely. And one thing I'm hearing is, you know, I appreciate you no matter how different you might be or how, you know, the way that you might do things differently, but that, that you're appreciating the uniqueness of every single person within the organization. Correct. Yeah. It's not, yeah, it's, it has little to nothing to little, little to nothing to do with, um, uh, that I, I mean, well, not, not a little, not, it, it, it is not solely dependent on, I appreciate you because you help me make money. Yeah. Or I appreciate sure. you is because you'll do the, you'll, you'll, you'll do the dishes in the, in the company uh, break room. And, and that means I don't have to, that's not what it is. What it means is that that we all, um, there's something that we contribute to each other that makes a difference. And the, the other part of that characteristic Don was the sense of collective direction. So tell us a little bit about that and how you see the great teams find their direction together. Well, uh, Again, once you believe that that everyone on the team um, brings something, right, and and that's the unique, that's the that's the challenge, right? Because a lot of times we want to look around our team and go, really, that guy's kind of slacking. That woman's a little, she's a she she does arrive a little late and leave a little early, right? If but that's that's you know that needs to be addressed in those kind because if we get to a place where we are all um, uh, that we appreciate what each of us bring to the, uh, you know, bring to the table. Then we, then collectively, we need to establish what that, what the direction for us is. What are we, what are we here to do? Business, um, my speaking, writing business, 
We talk about being, we want to be world-class storytellers at everything we do. We want to study storytelling. We want to teach storytelling. We want to, we want to be so good at it that people will look at us and go, wow, I want to, I want to, man, if I'm a great storyteller, I want to work with those guys. If I'm not a great storyteller, I want to learn from those guys, right? And, but we have this collective direction that is around a, a state. We, we know what we bring to the world that we think is important. And, and so that collective direction gives all of us, we know where we fit in the puzzle of creating great stories. And, um, uh, and it's, it's, it's magical once you get a group of people uh, who have that sense and that collective direction. But one of the things that I just heard you say was that they all really see value in what they offer, that they, they see that they're valuable in terms of what they do and who they serve. Correct. Yeah. And they believe that what they're doing uh, has meaning, right? And yeah. so um, uh, that's, if, you, if, you can manage, if you can manage those things, and it's fascinating because I, I have companies that I talk to who are like, eh, you know, we sell software. Or, you know, we sell gas cards, right, to, to businesses. Oh, really? So your question is, does that job have meaning? Well, why do people buy the gas cards? Well, they buy them because they give them an opportunity within their business to save money. Well, what do they do with the savings? Well, I, you know what? My guess is that they're pumping their savings, if it's like most small businesses, into expansion. Or they're pumping those, those savings into the opportunity to, to hire more people. And if you really believe that what you're doing is serving, not selling, then you, uh -huh. then you think, then you think differently about what you do. Absolutely. So is there anything else in terms of um, those 16 things that high performing organizations do one more that you'd like to share with us, Don? You know, I, I think if there was one that there, another one that really kind of caught up, caught me, um, is, is extremely valuable. It was about running successful huddles, right? Uh, it's the idea that all of us are stuck in, if you're in any kind of a team or corporate environment, you spend more of your day than you care to mention uh, in meetings. Um, but the best teams don't see meetings as a, uh, as a burden. They don't see them as a, uh, as, as a, as a moment of drudge. They actually see meetings as a, as an opportunity to to, to create competitive advantage. Uh, they run they run good meetings. They have it well established. Here's what we're meeting for. Here's you know here's what we're going to accomplish in the window of time we have together. We're going to leave here with a collective direction, right? We keep all these themes keep coming back together, and uh, and we're going to leave here knowing what has to happen next for each and every one of us. And if you can do that, you run more efficient meetings. And if you run more efficient meetings and your opponent is running less efficient meetings, who has the advantage, right? So the best teams understand that a great huddle gives them, a meeting is no longer an opportunity for you to catch up on Facebook, right? <laughs> While other people are talking. It's an opportunity to create for yourself and your team an advantage, and that's what we look for. Excellent, excellent. So I know, Don, before the call, you said you're working on a book with Joe Namath. So tell us a little bit about that book and when we can expect that out. 
Uh, it'll be out uh, this uh, late fall, um, close to Christmas, as all good books should be released close to Christmas. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, and it, it's a book that really, uh, it's uh, Joe taking a deep look into the life that made um, him famous, uh, the life that led him to challenges with alcohol and other things. I mean, it's just, life is a life is a, an amazing roller coaster and for joe it's had great highs and great lows and his ability to 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 be thoughtful and introspective um while looking at that is um is magnificent i mean i've, I've there's been few people i've enjoyed working with more Ah, love it. You know, and so I'm thinking that as people are listening, they might think, gosh, I'd love to do what Don does someday, you know, speak, write, be able to learn from all of these amazing athletes and some of the world's greatest teams and, and athletes and leaders. What would you, what advice would you give them, Don? Well, I think the key to, um, key to everything is the ability to, um, remain inquisitive. I think, um, I don't think I'm a great writer. I don't think I'm a great speaker. I don't, I don't think I'm great at anything except asking questions. Huh. And I ask, I ask a lot of questions. And so um, I think in the presence of people who uh, have achieved great things, I ask questions and shut up. And, <laughs> and, that's, the, uh, and that, I, that's been a model that's worked for me. Don, I so appreciate your time and energy today, and I know the listeners got a lot out of this interview. Um, I'd like to tell you the three things that were most important that I took down as I was listening to you. Um, I liked that your, your definition of camaraderie, and that it's really about appreciating everybody, and you know, just the understanding that everybody brings greatness to the team. Um, second thing you talked a lot about this collective why in organizations and that the, the best know it, but they feel it. And I liked the, the differentiation between feeling it and it inspires them, right? So they can feel it in their body. And then the last thing that you said is, you know, how that the best respond in these moments of adversity and they have the ability and they realize they have the ability to change the narrative, which is what most people are missing in the world. So I'm just so grateful for your time and your energy and your wisdom and your willingness to share it with thousands of people today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And it was, uh, it was great to get to get to get to know you a little bit while working together on this, uh, on this podcast. So Don, how could we reach out to you or connect with you? Perhaps hire you for a speaking engagement or learn more about the books that you've written? Sure. So uh, the website, donyager.com, D-O-N-Y-A-E-G-E-R.com, um, is uh, it kind of, it's, it's pretty all-inclusive. It's got everything there from uh, the pieces I've written over the years to connections to books to, you know, video. It's, all, it's got everything. So uh, if anybody is listening and has any interest in any of that space, I, I welcome uh, I welcome the, the, the contact. Thank you. Excellent. And are you on social media anywhere where we can find you? I am uh, uh-huh. on you know, Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. And it's, uh, yeah, it is, uh, uh, it's a challenge. In fact, one of the people on my team helps me manage all that because there's just, there, there, there seems to be so many opportunities 
uh, where we have uh, on a regular basis to share. So uh, it's an it's a, it's an honor to have people who actually care enough to listen. It's great. <laughs> Love it, Don. Well, any final advice you give to those listening? Well, I, I, I think we kind of hit on a little bit of it, which is, you know, be a lifelong learner. I mean, everybody says that. It sounds really, um, sounds really, it sounds really easy. It's actually the hardest thing you'll ever do is to sit back and say, um, I, uh, I, I need to have more questions and fewer answers. Ah, excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time and your energy today, Don, and everything that you do that's amazing in this world. Thank you, ma'am. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me today on the High Performance Mindset. If you'd like to learn more about the mental game in business, sport, and in life, you can pick up your own copy of the Beyond Grit book and workbook at beyondgrit.com. The book and workbook covers 10 practices to help you gain the high performance edge and provides practical strategies and tools that work. Adam Thielen, a Pro Bowl wide receiver for the Minnesota Vikings, wrote the foreword. And you can learn his insights on how he implements the mental game. And a special offer for the listeners of the podcast, you can use the code FREESHIP, that's capital letters and all one word, FREESHIP, to get free shipping of the book and workbook at beyondgrit.com. Have an outstanding day, my friends, and be mentally strong. Thank you for listening to High Performance Mindset. If you like today's podcast, make a comment, share it with a friend, and join the conversation on Twitter at mentally underscore strong. For more inspiration and to receive Syndra's free weekly videos, check out drsyndra.com.